I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. And those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week, we decided to talk to Jim Hodgson, who you'll learn a lot more about in a moment, about the situation in Venezuela. Uh, it's a really complicated um, whole thing that's going on, as you can probably discern from seeing uh, all kinds of different reporting and and uh, narratives about it right now. And we've had a lot of people ask us about it, and we did an episode on Chavismo a long time ago um, with a scholar named George Chikorilla Mar. I think it's episode 31. Um, so you could learn more about the political philosophy, I guess, there at that episode. But uh, we just wanted to take some time to talk to someone who's actually been to Venezuela and uh, Jim has been an election observer there in 2018 and also been a couple of other times uh, during the Bolivarian Revolution. So we picked his brain to sort of learn a little bit about what he thinks about what's happening there and a little bit more about the context of uh, everything that you're reading in the news. Yeah, it's such a hard situation because everything you're reading in the news is, you know, skewed and complicated. And there's so many, you know, uh, politics and different facets weighing on that Um media narrative. And that's something we'll talk to uh, Jim a lot about too. Um, but in case you want some other um, external resources from this podcast about uh, the situation in Venezuela and maybe how this media narrative works, uh, you should also check out uh, a scholar named uh, Alan McLeod. Um, he wrote an article this uh, past week that got published in a journal called Race and Class. Um, so uh, you can probably find a PDF of it floating around up there. And if you if you can't, I guess let me know and I'll send it to you or something. The article <laughs> is called uh, Chavista Thugs vs. Opposition Civil Society, Western Media and Venezuela. He also, uh, he's got a number of other articles which are great, but he also wrote a whole book that's just called Bad News from Venezuela. And it's all like media analysis of how people in the West uh, narrate what's happened in Venezuela. So really good scholar to kind of uh, check out what he's up to. Cool. Well, let's go to Jim. This week on the Magnificast, we're talking to Jim Hodgson, the Program Coordinator for Latin America and the Caribbean for the United Church of Canada. Uh, could you, Jim, maybe introduce yourself and tell us exactly what that means? <laughs> what is that title and uh, what do you do with the United Church? Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's good to be here with you. Um, so for the past uh, 19 years, I've worked with the National Office of the United Church of Canada. Um, 
the United Church is Canada's largest Protestant church with about 3,000 congregations across the country. Um, it's uh, built from the union of uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Congregational churches, and, and later several others, um, dating back about more than 90 years now. Um, the church inherited mission relationships, uh, kind of traditional mission relationships that are a little bit colonial uh, from the founding churches. But by the 1960s, we had moved to uh, a different model, um, much more uh, based on partnership um, and not, uh, you know, old language of mother and daughter churches and things like that. Uh, so as churches became independent in developing countries, um, including independent of us, uh, we try to establish much more uh, equal relations of, of partnerships. So what I do is uh, support the United Churches partnerships with churches, um, theological education centers, uh, and other kinds of organizations. So, so our partnerships aren't limited just to the religious uh, kinds of organizations, but we also work with some women's groups, some indigenous groups, um, human rights organizations in different places. So I work now with uh, about, I guess it's about 30 organizations in about eight countries in, in the region. Um, at least those are the ones that we share funds with. Uh, there are other countries like Venezuela, in fact, that, that we don't have direct partnership relations in, but, uh, but because of the way that people talk to each other or relate to each other, uh, we're part of um, you know, a, a broader ecumenical uh, network of, of uh, churches and organizations that have relationships with people in Venezuela. Oh, and I, you asked about me too. How did I get into this? Um, I, uh, my background is uh, Catholic, and I came uh, to this work uh, out of some experiences I had first in the mid-80s in the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and Nicaragua. Um, and uh, and I, my background is also in journalism, so I, I began to make a career for myself in the intersection of journalism uh church and uh latin america and, and part of that was realizing that, that the churches would pay me to be in latin america and write about latin america and not many other people would so that's kind of how i got to do what i'm doing and um i also lived in the dominican republic for two years at the end of the 80s and in mexico for six years at the end of the 90s Cool. Well, speaking of those trips to Venezuela that the church was willing to like pay you to go write about, <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, speaking of those trips, uh, you went to Venezuela as a delegation uh, of labor leaders and like, as a representative of the United Church of uh, Canada to observe the 2018 presidential election, uh, an election that now people are um, suddenly caring a lot more about. So a lot of stories in the media today characterize that election as illegitimate or unfair or something else altogether. Um, what did you and the other observers see there? What did like you know actual Venezuelans say? Uh, do those characterizations that um, the media make match what you actually saw? I think the, there's probably a couple of different ways of looking at this, and uh, that might be helpful to to people who are listening. Um, one is that yeah, I, I went as an observer. Um, the United Church sent me. I went as part of a delegation organized by Common Frontiers, which is a a coalition of uh, organizations in Canada that probably most of which are labor organizations. So the Canadian Labor Congress, uh, Unifor, um, the QP, uh, public sector workers and, and others. 
Um, so Common Frontiers sent this delegation um, and uh, you know, before we went, we were very clear we would go and uh, observe and report. A lot of what I um, saw, I wrote about at the time for um, a, a blog section of uh, rabble.ca so you can uh, look for the articles um, not just mine but but those of other people by typing in google rabble.ca venezuela they'll, they'll pop up right away um so uh so what we what we saw was a really well-run election uh, uh and uh, this was uh i believe the 25th election since 19 98 when Hugo Chavez uh, won uh, one election the first time as president of Venezuela so 25 elections in 20 years um, uh, they've gotten pretty good at, uh, at doing uh, at doing the <laughs> doing this um, what's controversial is that uh, some parts of the opposition boycotted the election and uh, and so we need to go back a little bit and, and to understand why um, so there had been uh, a national assembly election, I think, in 2016, that that the opposition actually won, or the, the more more representatives of opposition parties won that election. Um, they created uh, obviously a, a, an issue for the for the presidential, the executive part of the government. Um, there, there are actually five branches in the uh, Venezuelan state, and uh, I, I can't go through them all. But, um, but be, you know, in a, a usual Republican form of government, you have three branches. So one of them is legislative, one of them is the executive, one of them is judicial, and then there's something about um, the, the the sort of the authority of people um, and organizations. Uh, so anyway. Um, the National Assembly election was won by, by the opposition. The government's response to that was to say, look, our constitution uh, needs to be rethought 20 years into the uh, Bolivarian Revolution, and um, we're going to call a constituent assembly. So a constituent assembly was elected, um, and the constituent assembly has the task of drawing up a new constitution. Um, as such, uh, it was given the, the, the right to kind of... Um, have authority over the other branches of the government during the time that it takes to create a new constitution. I think your questions can be asked and debate can be held, but that is the decision of the Venezuelan people to, to, to do things that way. Um, so the National Assembly continued to exist, uh, and it had a revolving, like each of the parties in the, each of the Opposition parties the, the, that have together a majority um, had kind of alternating presidencies, and so the, the this guy that uh, has been uh, chosen by the government of Canada and the government of the United States to supposedly be the president of Venezuela is the um, was to be kind of the interim um, president or chair or speaker of the National Assembly, um, and so he, you know, yeah, he won a seat in the National Assembly, but wasn't elected to anything more than that by the people of Venezuela. And so suddenly now he's the um, this sort of designated opposition president. Uh, that is uh, controversial. Um, 
so the, 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 I, I, one other thing to keep in mind in, in that debate over, you know, National Assembly, Constituent Assembly, powers of different uh, branches of government and, and all of that was um, that after the National Assembly election and then after the creation of the Constituent Assembly, the government of Venezuela uh, sat down in a negotiation with the opposition parties. Um, and this was uh, hosted uh, by the government of the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo, uh, but it had accompaniment from a number of foreign, uh, former uh, heads of government or heads of state, including uh, Zapatero from uh, Spain and several others. Um, and so they worked hard and uh, the, got to some initial agreements and uh, the Venezuelan government agreed to move the election date the presidential election date ahead from December 2018 to May 2018 um, and uh, made that official and so on. But then at the very last minute, once an agreement was on the table, the opposition walked away from the negotiations and said, no, uh, they wouldn't agree. Um, uh, they wouldn't agree to what they had agreed to. They wouldn't uh, formalize or, uh, the, the agreement. Um, so that to me is that fact that there were negotiations before that the opposition walked away from uh, seems to get lost in uh, a lot of the media coverage. And I mean, all of that happened after the National Assembly election and after the creation of the Constituent Assembly. Um, so the fuss right now about uh, that election in May being illegitimate and unfair just seems to me uh, unfair, uh, unjust. Uh, we saw a, a fair election that some of the opposition parties boycotted, but some of the opposition parties participated in. 48% uh, of the population participated in the vote. Um, uh, Maduro won it, I've forgotten what, by what uh, proportion, but a substantial proportion, and, uh, and on, on we've gone. Um, and there was, uh, you know, the rest of 2018 was fairly quiet in Venezuela. There weren't too many protests, but all of a sudden now in January, um, there's this uh, new initiative uh, by the so-called Lima Group um, to... Um, to not recognize the elections, uh, to uh, and to declare this this uh, this other man the supposed president of uh, Venezuela. Um, thanks for that really like condensed and compressed uh, history. There's a lot of really good touch points there, Jim. Um, and I want to get us up to speed uh, to more contemporary events soon. Um, but I think it's probably helpful for us to spend a little bit more time also investigating your own uh, trip to uh, Venezuela for that particular election. Um, so right before the election, the Venezuelan opposition, they asked the United Nations not to send observers to the election um, so that it wouldn't, on their perspective, sort of legitimize what they said was a rigged poll. Um, but you and these other folks with Common Frontiers thought that it was important to show up anyhow. Um, why was it important to go independently? And also, why was it important to go on the behalf of the church? Why would the United Church have an interest in um, sort of observing those elections and having something to say about them? Thanks. I, I think um, maybe I'll go to the church part first. Um, what's what's uh, been important to us about Venezuela is that it's another one of those um, experiments, if you will, of um, the uh, of people who've been traditionally locked out of power, uh, the poor majority, um, the people who 
never benefited from Venezuela's oil wealth. Suddenly they got power. Um, it was a bit of an accident in 1998. Um, I, I think uh, Chavez won that election and maybe was surprised himself. Uh, and, and, and then it took a few years to sort of figure out um, what to do with the power and how, how, how to proceed. Um, the, uh, and, and, and so then, uh, the, meanwhile, the opposition got organized and, and tried all kinds of things to try to uh, unseat Chavez, just as they've tried to unseat Maduro in uh, more recent years. Um, so the question for us is, is always, well, what, having won power, what do the poor have to do to be able to hold on to power? Um, Traditionally, in Latin America, um, there's been a, a kind of um, a facade of democracy, a formal democracy. So people vote, uh, but things stay pretty much the same. Uh, you know, historically in Latin America, you had liberal parties and conservative parties, a bit like Canada, and they traded power off uh, between them um, every you know five years or ten years or twenty years, whatever. Uh, and uh, but nothing changed. Nothing fundamentally changed. And the differences were about you know uh, the relative power of rural landowners as opposed to urban business owners. Um, you still see that play out in places like uh, um, Guatemala or Colombia. Um, and uh, and and you know so so for for uh, a socialist party or a social democratic party even to to win take power. Uh, begin to make change, um, to bin, begin to do, in fact, what it is we say in our theology, um, you know, take the, take the powerful from their thrones, the Magnificat, and, um, and replace them with a different kind of power, uh, obviously threatens the, the, the powers that be. Um, so, so we've watched the, um, uh, process in Venezuela, the way we have uh, the processes in uh, Bolivia um, with, uh, with the, the changes there and, um, and a, a few other places, the, the so-called pink wave over the past decade, uh, Lula and Brazil and so on, with a lot of interest because um, it was the first time in, in, in a very long time that, uh, that we saw um, Politicians put social goals ahead of kind of narrowly defined GDP or uh, economic goals. Uh, so I had gone to Venezuela before. I went in 2004 as, as an observer of um, the uh, recall referendum that was used uh, to try to unseat uh, Chavez. Um, and Chavez won that uh, referendum with 60% of the vote. Uh, and then I went again two two years later. Um, like one of the one of the problems in the whole situation with Venezuela is how uh, uh, Venezuela and Colombia kind of get played against each other, or different sectors in each society get played against each other. And so, in in two thousand and six, um, we did some work together with uh, base Christian communities in Colombia and. Um, some grassroots movements and churches in uh, Venezuela to to try to bring together a conversation about um, hmm, about what kind of uh, relationship could exist between the people of the two countries and especially the church people. So so I think that's why why you know I wanted to go back again in in 2018 as an observer was was to sort of. Um, 
say we want to hold faith with the people of Venezuela um, in their journey, in their struggle uh, to uh, make change real. Um, uh, you know, it's not to discount uh, party democracy, but it is to say that uh, the you know traditional dem traditional party democracy gives a lot of power to those people who have a lot of money um, and a lot of influence over media and can something different be done that, that um, respects the, 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 the poor majority. The, the poor people are the majority in every, every one of the countries that we're talking about, um, but they rarely win the vote. Uh, and if you... If, so one of the things I've often thought about Venezuela and about Nicaragua more recently too is that uh, until the opposition parties come up with a uh, platform that respects the interests of poor people, they won't win elections um, it, that, are, that are truly free and fair. Um, so a truly free and fair election uh, will elect the poor or their representatives to power. Um, and what we usually see are elections that um, uh, kind of alternate power amongst the, the powerful and the rich, uh, rather than uh, the, the, the actual majority population in, in um, the countries of Latin America. That's a really interesting way to put it, I think. I like that idea that, you know, if democracy is about the uh, rule of the people and the you know the rule of the majority then um if it's the case that the poor are the majority like why are they so often um kept out of power that's a, a pretty provocative idea i think yeah and i, th I think that that you, you you can see some people with with good intentions here trying to restrict the power of of money in elections and uh you know this goes back and forth a bit uh uh the the big powerful u.s uh think tanks and money interests and the Fraser Institute in Canada hate that uh, idea that um, the power of money should be restricted. They see it as an unfair uh, restriction on their power. But, but from my perspective, and I think from the perspective of people who really care about democracy in its, uh, you know, people rule uh, sense, um, need to uh, see the damage that money can do to democracy. And I think what's going on in the United States right now is an example of, of, um, of that. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I guess on that point, I don't, I don't want to focus on the May elections completely, but I do want to, I guess, maybe riff off of what you just said here a bit. Um, like the way that, that journalists and like media outlets talk about the, the May elections, it seems like there's actually like a lot at stake. Like we might get the feeling that there's there's more at stake than just like, you know, the uh, like just the election itself or just like the, you know, the leader of the country for, you know, a time. So um, on that point about democracy and, and money in politics, like is the is the May election um, that have been like contested? Are, is there something bigger going on there? Is there something that makes them more important than like, you know, the election of another company or another country? Um, well, I, I, it's 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 kind of odd to me that that the election uh, suddenly or the validity of the election suddenly is is so contested because you know in in May last year yeah the opposition boycotted uh, Canada prevented Venezuelans in Canada from voting in Venezuelan consulates that was seen in Venezuela as a hostile act that was one of the controversies while we were there. Why is Canada so hostile to Venezuela was a question people asked. Um, and, you know, I don't, uh, 
to to me it doesn't really make sense except that it um that the election was again one of those tests of uh to use, use a certain phrase popular power you know the 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 election uh represented another opportunity of by the people of venezuela to affirm the direction the government was taking or that the people were taking that the country was taking um there were opposition candidates there there was fr freedom to vote the vote was sec uh, secret uh that you know it was um there were uh, you know checks and balances built into the system to ensure that it was secret and that the counting was fair um so you know i i and goodness it was a bit controversial at the time but it's much more controversial all of all of a sudden now in january 2019 um oh, so then you have to kind of go back and think well what else is going on and and i, I there's a whole um I think there's a whole uh, design. Uh, I don't want to be like a conspiracy theorist about it all, but but you know, I, I think there's kind of been um, plans unleashed uh, since the emergence of that that pink wave in Latin America to try to unseat the the, prog the progressive governments, the governments that that wanted to set social goals ahead of narrow economic goals. Um, so in uh, Paraguay and in uh, Brazil, they used kind of uh, questionable par uh, parliamentary techniques to get the progressives out of power. Um, in Honduras, it was an outright coup. Uh, in uh, Argentina and Chile, they, they were able to use just the, the regular uh, political system to, um, to, to unseat the powerful. Uh, in Mexico, things have turned out a bit differently. Uh, you know, a, a party of the left won the, the last election. And I think it's because people saw the absolute exhaustion, the moral bankruptcy of the traditional parties, the, um, the sort of uh, centrist pre and the conservative pan, and uh, that neither of them had been able to deal uh, with the real problems of Mexico. Uh, so they, the people voted for a party that hadn't been in power and that might actually produce uh, some change um and the uh the 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 people who who have been able to upset or overturn uh the progressive governments in other places didn't have time to organize against that so who am i talking about well a number of times when i've been um an election observer in uh other places in, including haiti or, or mexico uh in 2000 um uh you find yourself uh, standing in front of a polling station and with other foreign observers and oh who, who are you here with oh i'm from the national endowment for democracy or i'm with the national uh, democratic institute um so or the the international republican institute or the name close to that but it's not that's not quite the right name but these, uh, so the United States has this thing called the national endowment for democracy which is uh, supposed to be about funding to promote democracy in other countries, which all sounds fine, except that there's a certain take on what democracy is. And it goes back to what I was saying before about the power of rich people. Um, they'll, they'll promote democracy, but as long as it keeps um, countries safe for capitalism um, and safe for rich people and keeps the oil interests in the hands of the people who will benefit most from them and, uh, and so on. So, 
in uh, Venezuela or in Haiti or in uh, Nicaragua now, uh, you can see the fingerprints of the National Endowment for Democracy in a lot of the, the action. So, you know, there's a, a good article um, floating about uh, um, just now by Max Blumenthal and someone else, uh, Jay Cohen, I think, um, about the, the way that uh, this guy, Guaido, the... Um, the supposed uh, interim president of Venezuela, how he was uh, trained by the National Endowment for Democracy for the uh, job that uh, that the um, that the power that the powers outside of Venezuela want him to do. Um, so you know, so I, I would just encourage your listeners, I guess, to you know, type National Endowment for Democracy into their search engine and um, and read about it. it. It's not hard to follow their fingerprints on how um, conservative opposition movements um, are funded uh, by U.S. interests. Yeah, um, I mean, I get the uh, apprehension to sound too conspiratorial, but... Uh... There is a sense in which there's a certain kind of maybe not conspiracy, but uh, certainly uh, organized vested interests in what happens in Latin America. Um, And that's something that seems to be sort of emerging around this particular uh, coup attempt in Venezuela. Um, I guess we can return to what's going on there now on the ground a little bit more in a second. But uh, could you say something, too, about sort of Canada and the U.S.'s role Um, in what's happening in in Venezuela now. Um, You know, for example, I've just been thinking about how uh, Canada appears to be a pretty major player in this coup attempt, um, which might kind of be surprising for people who think of Canada as like a polite society where the joke is that everybody sort of says sorry all the time, you know, or holds the door open for everybody. Um, But, you know, you've been following Canadian intervention in other places like Haiti and, and elsewhere. Um, so what role has Canada taken in Venezuela and how does that sort of match up with U.S. Uh, interests and that sort of thing? Um, maybe you could just kind of speak a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks. I, I think um, some of us are, are a bit surprised by the Canadian um, attitude around Venezuela. And uh, and, and I would compare it to um, other moments in in history, uh, so Canada uh, and Mexico were the only two countries in the Americas that did not break relations with Cuba after the relation after the revolution in 1959. Um, that, for many years, I think, was a sign of pride uh, for Canadians uh, that we took a, a stance that was independent of uh, that of the United States. Um, in the Central American Wars, uh, there were times when. Canada would refuse to criticize the United States. Uh, uh, Trudeau had a foreign minister, a guy named uh, Mark McGuigan, who uh, got into this bizarre uh, debate about whether Canada's attitude towards the war in El Salvador was quiescent or acquiescent. And you know, I, I still don't remember what the point was, but I can remember it being a big deal at the time. Uh, but but in, in any case, Canada was like not not really engaging on one side or the other, but it, but by not engaging, it, it seemed like they were too close to the US, that, that kind of thing. But at another moment, I think uh, during the Mulroney years, um, in the 1980s, uh, Joe Clark, uh, the, for, the foreign minister, is that right? Um, yeah, Joe Clark, the foreign minister, um, uh, 
supported what was called the Contadora peace process. So this was a, a process to to get towards negotiations around the various uh, Central American conflicts. So uh, Canada in that instance supported dialogue over the U.S. strategy, which was war. Um, and so you come to right now, well, we're 20, 25 years into uh, a, a globalized neoliberal economy, free trade agreements, uh, trade protection, and, and so on. And, and so, yeah, the 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 uh the the sands have shifted um uh so so some of us kind of want to go straight to to the minister of foreign affairs uh christia freeland um and and blame her and you know i'm kind of tempted to do that too she has a a kind of uh an attitude uh towards the left uh that that i don't think is fair um and uh uh she does also have a uh, uh, an argument that is about authoritarianism, and and so she doesn't like authoritarian governments. She says, um, and you know, in that speech in Washington last year, uh, kind of at the height of the 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 you know new NAFTA or no NAFTA with with Trump, uh, she made a speech in Washington where she talked about authoritarianism and the and the, uh, this defense of the uh, post war. Um, system of uh, multilateral institutions, uh, the the United Nations and its agencies, and World Bank and all of that. Um, you know, in a way, you can say, yeah, well, that's fine. But but then uh, to take aim at Venezuela, I think, is a mistake. Um, but it's not just Freeland. Freeland, it's it, you know, when when I've talked with Canadian diplomats, and and this goes back. I'd say maybe about 10 years, uh, you know, during the Harper years, as well as the more recent past. And there was a uh, tremendous hostility towards uh, the Venezuelan government, you know, uh, uh, and and it is hard to understand why, um, you know, why is it so awful that, that a government uh, tries to turn the resources of the nature towards the benefit of the poor for health care, for education? Um, why is it so awful that a government um, acts in solidarity with poor people in other countries and begins to trade things like uh, oil for uh, doctors, in the case of Cuba, or um, other kinds of resources in, in other countries, or, or even sells oil at a reduced price to uh, countries like Haiti, in fact? Um, those, those to me are all good things and I don't see why the Canadian government would oppose them except that there's a lot of power in Canada in oil companies and in mining companies and I kind of think that the oil companies and the mining companies have really got a hold now on um, the way Canadian foreign policy is conducted. That and is probably the more uh, immediate issue is uh, not wanting to offend uh, Trump any more than possible. Uh, and, you know, that might be why we're kind of playing this game over China, why we're playing this game around Venezuela. But, but I do think it goes deeper than that, that it, that it, that it probably has something to do with the, the interests of the uh, resource extraction industry in Canada and, and what they see in Venezuela, um, which is a lot of oil, coltan, gold, and, and other resources. So speaking of that authoritarianism you just mentioned a minute ago, I mean, that is the sort of main media narrative that's emerged around Maduro. Um, 
it's you know i guess not just maduro as well it's kind of like the there's a sort of negative light that has been put onto the entire legacy of chavismo um by uh, both canada and the united states so could you maybe say a little bit more about that like uh the claims of authoritarianism or just like the you know um the claim that maduro is a dictator or something is there, is there anything there or like what do you think uh, the purpose of that specific narrative is yeah um uh, to, to, again, to, to, to me, it's, 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 it's hard to understand because I, I just I don't really believe it. I, I think that there are um, all kinds of ways that opposition voices are heard and are effective in Venezuela. Um, the, the, you know, there the are municipalities and state governments as well as the national government, and many of the municipalities or, the, or, or states are uh, controlled by opposition parties. Um, uh, much of the media is uh, still independent of the government. Um, they say and do pretty freely what they want. Um, I uh, um, so it's not. It's there's not the same social control that that I can remember in some other places, and and you know I, I've sometimes thought about the the governments of the left that they they could be more uh, more uh, open um, to individual voices and uh, writers and artists and, and uh, uh, di different ways of thinking uh, but I don't even think that that's been a problem in Venezuela you know it's Venezuela uh, clamped down hard on one of the uh, big opposition television networks refused to um, renew its license. But, but that was a television network where, honestly, you would sit down in the morning and watch breakfast television and they would be there talking about how to assassinate the president. I mean, it really went beyond the pale. It would be not permissible in Canada um, to sit on television and talk about how to, how to assassinate the, the leader of the government. It's, it's, it's just preposterous. Uh, so. Um, is that authoritarianism? No, it's uh, protection of the public interest, it seems to me. Um, and it would be seen that way in Canada, too. So I think a lot of this stuff about Venezuela being authoritarian is just uh, made up. I don't see the evidence for it. Um, just to kind of keep on a similar line, but maybe from like the opposite uh, angle or opposite side. Um, okay, so there's one narrative about Venezuela that says Maduro is this authoritarian consolidating all his power. Um, and then on the other hand, or on the other sort of side of society, uh, you know, people are getting poorer and poorer. And um, one sort of story that gets told a lot in the news media is that, uh, well, all Venezuelans want Maduro out and he's just clinging to it, you know, as hard as he can. Um, so, you know, what do you say to people who kind of are otherwise maybe informed media consumers? You know, they're reading uh, what should be reputable news sources um, and the story that they get is that uh, there's all this social unrest because of someone like Maduro. And uh, if you would only listen to Venezuelans, you know, you would you would know the truth, which is that Maduro is this dictator kind of ruining everyone's lives and getting fat off of his own oil or something like that. Um, you know, how, how would you kind of uh, re-narrate that story? I think maybe two things. One, one is about the impact of sanctions. So for the past uh, several years, Venezuela has been... Uh, facing these sanctions uh, from uh, the United States and, uh, and some other countries. So 
just the, 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 the existence of a sanctions regime um, has put a bit of a scare into, into companies um, that might be willing to sell uh, food or pharmaceuticals to Venezuela. Uh, so there have been shortages of, of uh, all kinds of things in, in Venezuela. Um, so, so the impact of sanctions is, uh, does have an impact that hurts people. Um, there are ways uh, that Venezuela is, is, is getting access to a lot of medication uh, from India. Um, and and um, food and consumer goods, some things do get there. Uh, we, we, when I was there in May, we tried to get into, we tried to go for a walk around the, the, the center of the city and into pharmacies and into supermarkets. And we certainly were experienced with restaurants and cafes and whatnot and didn't, and, and didn't have trouble finding what it was we needed. Um, uh, you know, as, as kind of foreigners wandering around in, in uh, downtown Caracas. So, but, the, but I think for, for ordinary people, it's, it, it can be a challenge. And, and um, so the government has ways of uh, assuring basic food supplies uh, to people um, with, with subsidized rates. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the sanctions have had an impact. Um, and I've, I've forgotten the other thing I was going to say about this, but it, 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 oh, uh, media. Uh, how the story gets told. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I've been uh, surprised by the the tone of the CBC uh, these past few weeks um, in Canada. Uh, the the um, uh, the I, and I think it goes back to um, how journalists work together with each other. So a network like, um, well, the U.S. networks, any of them, or, or CBC, um, relies on uh, networks of translators and freelancers, and, and, and those people have to be bilingual. And so they're coming from a certain class in Venezuela, or maybe they come out of uh, a space where they've been working uh, for, for that network that, um, that lost its license. <coughs> and... Um, and maybe their best friend does or did, uh, and, and so there's, uh, or maybe they depend on uh, a network like uh, CNN in Spanish, CNN in Espanol, or um, or Univision for their major income. So they're uh, not going to do anything that 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 upsets the boat with their with their um, major uh, employer. Um, so you you get a certain um, a certain discourse going on among journalists and for anybody who's independent of that it's it's pretty hard to um one get hired <laughs> uh, and two get your voice out or get uh, get heard so there there are other spaces um you know telesur uh which is uh, a, a network um sponsored by the venezuelan government um uh based in ecuador uh, so Telesur has a service in, in, in English as well as its major service in, in Spanish. So it's uh, a good alternative source. So, so I have my, in fact, I have my Facebook set up every morning so that I get the Telesur in English service first. And it kind of sets the tone for my day. Uh, I read other things. I, I, I you know, pay a lot of attention to the CBC. I read the Globe and Mail every day, which is you know, a fairly conservative mainstream newspaper. Um, so, uh, and, and 
somehow from all of that, uh, I try to discern uh, what might be true in a kind of provisional way every day. Um, uh, but from all of that, I, I uh, have become very suspicious of the, the mainstream sources. Uh, the CBC the past couple of days has been using a, a new, very young um, freelancer in Caracas uh, who, you know, I don't know where he comes from. And, but he's repeating what they want to hear. Um, and that's unfortunate. That's not good for journalism. That's not good for us uh, as we try to determine policy. Uh, uh, we, we need to hear uh, more voices. Uh, you know, I come back to, um, uh, yeah, I'm offering a certain critique of, of media, but, but I come back to the, the point. Like, you can disagree with Chavez. You can think he's authoritarian, but how do we get, how do you then propose to get out of the mess? Uh, if you if you accept that it, it's a mess, um, and I think that dialogue is the better way forward, uh, not this um, kind of uh, juvenile uh, invention of a you know president. That's that's just not a reasonable approach to serious problems. Yeah, um, your explanation of the the situation uh, in terms of journalism, I think, is really helpful in highlighting. Um, I guess where some of these impasses come from, I mean, it, it's, it's to me so wild that these media narratives completely shape the way that, you know, every single person thinks about the situation too. Um, and, and that's how it's all mediated to us is through, um, these, uh, sometimes, you know, or usually <laughs> pretty biased reporting. Um, I mean, I, I saw Dean tweet earlier today about Venezuela and like within seconds, some, you know, complete stranger was already jumping down his throat about how wrong he was or whatever. Um, so it's just kind of like sets the tone um, of the whole situation. But I mean, for that very reason that um, that the reporting is so complicated and, and biased and, um, you know, tending toward a specific reading of the situation, I think that your experience in Venezuela seems, you know, extremely relevant. Uh, so, I mean, you've traveled to other countries in Latin America and the Caribbean that have also been affected by imperialism uh, of both Canada and the U.S. Um, but um, Christians in imperialist countries often go to these other countries like on mission trips. And um, our experiences of them are mediated through both, you know, journalism, uh, but also through the lens of, uh, you know, evangelicalism. Uh, you know, where we, we go there to do certain types of humanitarian aid or some type of like spiritual development for the people there or something. Well, so, I mean, I guess in light of, of, of those other experiences that maybe weigh on people's uh, minds and imaginations about um, uh, Latin and Central America and the Caribbean, um, what do you think about the role of Christians in the U.S. and Canada when it comes to countries that have been, you know, pr profoundly shaped and affected by the policies of imperialist countries? Yeah, thanks. I... I uh... I'll, be, I'll tell a bit about my, my own story and then share some thoughts. Uh, so when I went to um, the Dominican Republic first in 1983, I went uh, in a program that was co-sponsored by um, Scarborough Foreign Missions, which is a Roman Catholic religious order that had uh, missionaries first in China and, until the revolution in 49 and then um, various other parts of the world. Um, by the 1960s, uh, most of their priests were um, kind of captivated or in, enchanted by liberation theology and, and saw that that made, um, made sense to them in, in, um, 
in their contexts uh, that they, they, they wanted to make an option for the poor. They wanted to stand with the poor in, in their aspirations. And so uh, the Scarborough Mission, Scarborough Missions had priests in the Dominican Republic. And they had priests there in 1965 when the United States uh, invaded to put down a popular revolution uh, that wanted to bring back uh, a man named Juan Bosch, who, uh, who had been overthrown in a coup sponsored by the Kennedy administration. We think of Kennedy as a good guy. Not always. Kennedy's government overthrew Juan Bosch in 1963, 1965. The people rebelled. Uh, there was a revolution. And one of the Scarborough priests who asked questions about political prisoners was, was murdered. Um, so the Scarborough priests and the uh, youth ministry of the Toronto Archdiocese here called um, uh, uh, Youth Corps at the time, it created this uh, youth exposure visit, but it wasn't a week-long or a 10-day program of going and building a wall or a school or something. It was six weeks, and the whole intention was to go and listen and learn and engage in conversation. And um, and so I went and was uh, in an area where, where people were... Um, there, there were many Haitian migrant workers who were cutting sugar cane. So I, I spoke French uh, better than Spanish at the time, and I hung out with the Haitians, uh, learned about Haiti, um, met some of the popular educators and the activists who were trying to overcome the Duvalier dictatorship at the time. That all changed my life. That was uh, absolutely transformative. It, it was, uh, you know, six solid weeks of learning. But a lot of the, the, these mission trips that happen now are too short. They're week-long, 10 days. Um, they're very programmed. Uh, the conversations, to, to the extent that they happen with, with the local people, tend to be uh, facilitated, guided, or um, you know, very controlled. And you don't get at the depth of the issues around, say, you're in Guatemala, well, you're indigenous, well... Uh, why has there never been an indigenous president of Guatemala? Why is it that 70% of the people are indigenous and none of your politicians look like you? You know, uh, how can you have those conversations uh, when, you know, you're, you're so focused on building a wall or a school or, or, or a clinic? Not that those are bad things, but there could be so much more that's done. Um, so in the United Church anyway, yeah, we have groups that go to, to other countries um, and sometimes on short trips, but we put an emphasis, a strong emphasis on education. Um, and hopefully people come back having learned something about the context that they're going into. It's, you know, a problem for us right now in Nicaragua that, uh, you know, we had two you know, pretty good ways of... Uh, sending people to Nicaragua where, you know, education was a focus. But, but if you find, I found um, kind of after the uh, disturbances last year, the protests, um, that people split along class lines. And we realized that the people who were doing the translating in those programs were kind of middle or upper class, and they had different interests from the people that we were sending our groups to. Um, and I haven't figured my way out of that yet. Uh, but you know, who learns languages? Who has the time to learn languages? I, I, it's, it, it's not necessarily the, the, you're not necessarily talking with the people you need to be talking about to have, talking with to have a transformative experience. So I think we, we all have to uh, rethink how we do those kinds of programs and maybe going back to, you know, the, the, the root of inspiration for me in, in the Dominican Republic and the way we did that program is a, is a way to go. Um, these are all really amazing, uh, suggestions. Uh, I mean, you could, we could talk for a whole hour, I think about how to sort of, uh, bring a more anti-imperialist, um, 
kind of sensibility to the way we do missions. Um, I guess uh, maybe we could kind of close just asking, you know, as Christians are facing uh, massive media campaigns to support coups, but also our own class interests that might kind of blind us to exactly those kinds of questions, like who learns languages and that sort of a thing. Um, how do you think that Christians can talk with each other, with our friends or congregants or comrades who are not Christians, um, in a way that actually does justice to situations like Venezuela's or, uh, you know, a number of others? Like, what are some practices maybe that you've found in the United Church to be really effective or that you'd like to see more of? Or, um, yeah, do you have any kind of intuitions along those lines? Well, thanks. It's, it's, it's a challenge, I think, every day. And uh, we're living in times where uh, opinions are, are polarized. It's, it's, um, and I, you know, I'm part of that. I, I you know, I, I tend to view things from the left, um, the political and religious left. And, and uh, so, you know, uh, some, sometimes uh, I'm tempted to just jump into the fight um, and start arguing. And, and yeah, sometimes that's necessary, but, uh, but I actually try to take a deep breath and engage people in um, conversation. Um, I think around uh, Venezuela or, or Nicaragua, for that matter, uh, right now, because those are a bit more in the news, um, getting into conversations about uh, different approaches, different policy approaches. So promoting dialogue, support for dialogue, uh, you know, that for, for people who are kind of um, in a sort of a, a middle ground or, you know, in that, that, that world of Canadian politics, which... You can kind of have civilized discourse, at least from the from the NDP through the Liberals to the Red Tories, the sort of moderate conservatives. Um, you can kind of have reasonable conversations uh, about the, the need for dialogue. With the hardliners, um, it's they're working out of an alter. <laughs> they're working with alternate facts uh, or what they think are facts, and, and with other interests in mind. And and so you know, sometimes sometimes I, I uh, have to find find ways of uh encouraging them to to think of things in just different ways um and it, but that's much harder that's a much bigger topic than um trying to uh get to a more reasonable position for canada with regard to venezuela the you know i i think the government um should look hard at its history though the way it um, engaged with Cuba for many years, the way the way it engaged with Nicaragua right away after the revolution um, in 1979, uh, uh, establishing development programs and so on. Um, there are much, I think, more can be gained from engaging with um, uh, progressive governments uh, in, in other contexts uh, than uh, by going down this road of confrontation. Yeah, thanks. That's really helpful. Um, well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, we'll try to sort of, we'll link some of the things that you mentioned, you know, especially the Ravel articles and others. We did some more writing on this uh, for folks to um, to do some more research on their own. Um, but yeah, we just wanted to say thanks so much for your time and for sharing some of your experience and some of your thoughts about these matters. It's really tough to kind of cut through all the fog of, of different interests. Um, and uh, yeah, hope that people kind of have another perspective. Thanks. It's been it's been good to talk with with both of you. And uh, I wish your listeners all the best as they discern their next steps. Um, it's not that we have to agree on everything every day, but uh, but, you know, read widely, question each other. Um, 
you know, look for other sources. Uh, actually, I was going to say that uh, Common Frontiers, the, the organization that organized our delegation, had uh, put out a really good election report, and that's available online as well. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, um, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You know what? We got some new stickers up there. We, we got this cool August Spies sticker. Uh, we got a very good sticker. It just says very good because our podcast is uh, very good. Yeah, I actually got it, it uh, this good. week and it's on my laptop and I love it. It's so good. It's You know, it's very good. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, very so do that. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, follow us on Facebook, I guess. We're there. I'm off Facebook these days. Um, but uh, if you're on there, talk to Dean <laughs> and the other people, I guess. Yeah, the Facebook group is still active, but I think the the page has like slowly, um, slowly escaped into the oblivion of abandoned Facebook pages. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. Just taking up space on Zuckerberg's servers. <laughs> That's right. That's the uh, it's uh, occupying the uh, the space. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, um, thanks to Amari Armstrong for uh, the intro music that is still very good. Um, like our sticker again, and thanks to the Illogical Spoon uh, for our outro music. Uh, cool. We'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside.